Very few people would actually say that to you. Most people, when they look in the mirror, they see themselves as open-minded. Right. I've never heard somebody say, I'm entirely closed-minded. No, no one describes themselves that way. No one thinks of themselves that way. And I think, okay, if you see yourself as open-minded, I think the next question is to look in the mirror and say, well, what does that actually look like? This month on Ebb and Flow, we speak with an expert on one of the most fundamental human skills. In a word, communication. Dean Brenner is founder of The Latimer Group, a company with the simple focus of helping people communicate better. Dean and team work with the leaders and employees of some of the world's largest corporations. And as we discover in our chat, the skills he is teaching corporate CEOs are very much applicable to every one of us in our own professional, social, and family lives. Over the course of our conversation, we ask Dean how to get our communication muscles functioning again as we emerge from COVID-19, if it's possible to have a conversation with someone with an opposing political view, and how this talented communicator has applied his skills to his own children and with his former colleagues on the U.S. Olympic sailing team. I'm Paul Leeming, and on behalf of UBS Long River Wealth Management, welcome to this month's edition of Ebb and Flow. Dean Brenner, welcome to the podcast. So happy you could be here. Oh, thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. I'm really excited for this conversation. Yeah, so am I. So, Dean, to frame today's discussion, I wonder if you can mm-hmm. tell us what the Latimer Group actually does. Tell us about your sure. business. Yeah, so we are the definition of a small business, and we are the definition of a entrepreneurial startup. I started the business 20 years ago, and we are a small nine-person, about-to-become-ten-person organization. And we do corporate training and coaching with a very specific focus area. We partner with corporations around their communication skills. Hmm. And typically the workshops and the coaching that we do are around helping people get to the point, drive good outcomes, not waste people's time. But, you know, there's an enormous amount of communication that happens inside the typical corporation internally and externally. And people need to be able to get to the point and and get the outcomes that they want. And, And ultimately we help people be more persuasive. Um, it's a really niche business, one that's evolved over the 20 years. You know, it's entirely our own making. Like it's something we're really proud of. And and my team and I are are really proud of where we've ended up. We've been following along to Dean as I've gotten to know you and, and uh, congratulations on all of the success of your business. I think it's a great undertaking. You know, I also acknowledge that not everyone listening to today's podcast fits the the profile of one of your corporate clients. Sure. However, you know, I did think it would be a, a great idea to talk to you on this podcast just in general about some concepts of communication, communication being Absolutely. something that we all have to do in yes. our work lives and in our daily lives. So let's get into a couple of issues that I think will be interesting to, to everybody. And I'd like to start with you know the mm-hmm. elephant in the room, or I guess you, you yep. might say, hopefully, the, the elephant walking out of the room, namely COVID. Can you yep. talk about how this pandemic has changed the way we communicate and how we should be thinking about communicating in a post-COVID world. Sure. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap in the way I would answer this professionally and personally. But, you know, let's first talk about what good communication is. Good communication is about ultimately connecting with other people and, and finding common ground, whether it's an exchange of ideas, a social interaction, a professional interaction. But really, it's about connection. And, and when you can build that connection, whether it's professional or personal, there's now an opportunity for a really nice relationship to be built. 
And that all got really much harder 16 months ago. Mm. Connections always been hard. I mean, let's face it, even pre-COVID, we were living in a very noisy world. We were living in a highly distracted world. And this is true, again, professionally and personally. We're all pulled in a lot of different directions all the time. There's a lot of things competing for our attention spans. Like, think about all the content distractions that are out there. It's really hard to get heard. It's hard to connect. It's hard to get somebody to, like, focus on your conversation. And then 16 months ago, we're all told we couldn't see each other anymore. And just connection is harder when you're never in each other's presence. So, you know, I could answer this professionally or personally, but actually I think if this were a Venn diagram, Mm. the challenges for both professional and personal communication, there's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram, both on our professional lives and our personal lives. It's harder to connect with human people, human beings when you're never together. And because it's been 16 months now, like a lot of that has become normal for a lot of people. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of people in both parts of my life just talking about a sense of isolation and not really knowing how to connect anymore and not knowing how to stay in touch and communicate. But I think over the next six or 12 months, as we start to reintegrate ourselves to each other, I think we're going to be dealing with a lot of issues around resocialization. And I think it's going to be a lot harder for a lot of people than maybe we realize. It's, it's achievable, and we can talk about that. But it's, it's, it's going to feel unnatural is, is really my, my, my point there. You see that in many different forms as, as people's sort of social muscles have atrophied, if you will. Yes. I mean, I've been for, you know, for the first time in, as you said, 16 months to a couple of social gatherings recently and find myself face-to-face with a group of people and, and frankly, you know, a little uncomfortable because I just haven't been doing it for a while. So, you know, yes. in, in either the professional or the, the, the personal setting that I just described, do you, I mean, do you have advice for people sort of confronting this re-entry to communication? Yeah, for sure. And, and first of all, I think it's important Whenever you're dealing with any sort of anxiety, and now I'm putting on my amateur therapist hat here, <laughs> but I think whenever you're dealing with any level of anxiety, I always think it's really powerful and, and, and healthy when you realize you're not alone. Right. And, and I think one of the biggest anxiety inducers for people is when they think that what they're dealing with is uniquely theirs. And once you realize, hey, you know what, this feeling that I'm having, it's a really big club and I'm not alone, I actually think for a lot of people that can help sort of drop the heart rate. Hmm. So I think, first of all, realizing if you're feeling some anxiety about re-entry, you're not alone. I, don't, I know very few people that aren't feeling that. Right. I think the second thing is name it. And you get, my, Emily and I have gone through this. My wife, Emily, and I have started to reintegrate some things. We hosted a party a few weeks ago with four other families, and there was a lot of anxiety just before. And one of the things we did when the other families showed up is we kind of made a joke out of it and said, hey, this is weird for us. Is it weird for you? Right. And everybody laughed about it. And that kind of diffused it. And, and, and once we realized we all were feeling a little weird and we didn't have to pretend otherwise, that I think made it a little easier to, to, to re-engage. And then the third one is if you're super uncomfortable with something, it's absolutely okay to decline. Like you don't have to go back zero to 60 right away back to like the full social cocktail party circuit. Like ease your way into the pool, go to the shallow end. Try a couple things, you know, let, let, see how it feels, see how cold the water is sort of thing. You're not alone is the, is the point. And by the way, again, I'm having this exact same conversation in professional settings with people I coach. 
hmm. that it's in that setting, it might not be a social engagement. It might be reentry to the office. The common denominator is the same. I'm not used to being around people. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's, so. it's, it's definitely interesting and, and good, good advice, simple advice. And that's often the best kind. Let's talk about something that is, is, you know, was a problem before the pandemic and one that yeah. has certainly persisted through it and beyond it certainly will. And that's the, the sort of tricky topic of speaking to people about charged issues like, like politics, sure. social topics, beliefs, et cetera. And these are important topics. And yet I think, it's safe to say that we're all just really bad at discussing them. So particularly with, you know, people of the opposite viewpoint. So how do we get yeah. better at this? Well, you're right. I mean, this is this is not a new problem. And 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 a lot of people think it's it's there's a there's a recency bias in the way a lot of people talk about this problem like it's a brand new thing. And it's it's not. It's it's maybe accelerated in recent years and COVID was certainly part of that because, you know, and, and there's a lot of research that's been done about people retreating into their own echo chambers, picking their news source, moving to places where everybody agrees. Like there's all sorts of different versions of the echo chamber. Right. COVID accelerated that. COVID was an accelerant on that because we all retreated into our homes and now our circles got smaller and we probably, whatever circle we had during COVID probably were the people we were most comfortable with. Right. And we retreat to our own news source and we're spending a lot of time consuming content that we're all curating really heavily. So, so this is not a new problem, but, but it's definitely become a bigger problem. And, you know, to me, the solutions are far from easy. But what I always say to people, this conversation comes up a lot too. You know, I say to people like, it has to start with, let me just ask you a question. Do you have any interest in hearing a competing perspective? Because if you don't, like, let, let's just not waste each other's time. Right. Like, like if, if you're not interested in that, that's cool. That's fine. Don't, let's not waste each other's time. But very few people would actually say that to you. Most people, when they look in the mirror, they see themselves as open-minded. Right. I, I've never heard somebody say, I'm entirely closed-minded. No, no one describes themselves that way. Hmm. No one thinks of themselves that way. And I think, okay, if you see yourself as open-minded, I think the next question is to look in the mirror and say, well, what does that actually look like? And the way I coach people on this is, Whenever you find yourself thinking or actually saying, you know, painting with a really broad brush and speaking in absolutes, anybody who thinks blank, I have no time for. Whenever you find yourself thinking or speaking with really broad brush statements, that should be a red flag to you that maybe you're making a leap there that's going to make it really hard for you to connect to an opposing viewpoint. Hmm. And again, if you're not interested in opposing viewpoints, that's fine. But if you are, then the challenge becomes, okay, you perceive yourself one way, check yourself, are your behaviors actually matching up with that? When somebody says to me, oh, I'm totally open-minded, how many different news sources do you consume from? Right. If you're only consuming from one, are you really open-minded? Maybe you are. I'm just, I'm asking you to examine that for yourself. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. How broad a network do you have? How many people do you speak to that actually have the other point of view? Or do you only socialize people with the same point of view? Okay, you say you're open-minded, but behaviorally, is that matching up? I mean, you know, I'll tell you a funny story on this. I actually had this happened about three months ago. I'm happy to admit to your listeners that I'm an avowed independent voter and the definition of a centrist. Okay. I vote equally on both sides of the aisle in national elections. Depending, I, I vote based on the person, not the platform. And I actually, in the same week at one point, had a far-right friend of mine refer to me as a closet socialist and a far left friend of mine refer to me as a closet fascist <laughs> in the same week. Right. Both of those things can't be true. 
<laughs> you know, one of the, it's all perception. It, I don't know if that helps. It but. does. No, and it, it, it is. It, it reminds me of a story in in my my former career before I joined Long River Wealth Management. I, w- I worked in the in the UBS research department. Some will know, and we would put out reports on politics. You know, by necessity, it's yeah. an important part of investing, and and we would you know try to be as objective as possible. And the and the the lead author, and I won't betray his uh, political leanings, but he was extremely careful on, 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 on what we would say in these reports. And yet inevitably there would be, you know, 20 to 30 emails equally split between people on both sides of the political spectrum, just, just irate with what, <laughs> with what had been said. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a tricky balance. The metaphor that works for me is if we, if we think of the political discussion as a highway, Maybe it used to be a four-lane highway with two lanes in either direction. Mm-hmm. Now it's like a 12-lane highway. And in the past, if you were a centrist sitting on the median, you weren't that far from either outer lane. Right. Now in a 12-lane highway, if you're sitting on the median, either outer lane looks really far away. Right. right. And, and, and that, to me, is the metaphor that really works because the voices on both ends of the spectrum, which make me equally uncomfortable, are further apart than they've ever been in my adult lifetime. Well, maybe as to get back to your initial point on this question, as we come out of COVID and our networks can expand, we should use that as an opportunity to try to appreciate some other other viewpoints out there and at least have the the dialogue end to the point of this conversation communicate. So, Dean, I'm going to move on. You have a terrific blog that I follow religiously, and, and I noted a series of posts recently on the importance of relationships in your yeah. work and, and obviously in your life. In my work, helping families manage their wealth, it's, it's you know, well known that this is a relationship business, so I can, I can relate to that. But talk, if you would, about what the relationship means from a communication perspective in, in your experience. Yeah. And actually, you know, Paul, I coach a lot of people in my professional life, in people in your industry. So I know, I know exactly what you're talking about when you describe your business as a relationship business. There's no question that it is, you know, and and I think when I'm coaching somebody in a relationship business or when I'm thinking about my own personal relationships, the richest relationships I have are ones where the people that I feel closest to are the, the ones that show a deep, not a superficial, but a deep interest in what I'm trying to say. And this easily connects back to the prior topic. Mm. But like when I'm coaching somebody who is in a relationship business, you know, I say, listen, you really have to work on your listening skills. And I don't mean in a superficial way. And this gets really clouded when you're in a sales position too, because you're you're motivated to close the deal and you want to bring those assets in house, for example. But the way to bring those assets in house is to actually slow down, stop trying to sell anybody something and actually demonstrate in a true and deep way that you are interested in learning more about them and actually listening to their answers. And when you show that deep appreciation for what makes a person really tick, now the relationship really has a chance to blossom into something. And and when that's flowing in both directions, now that becomes like a lifelong, powerful relationship. You know, human beings crave connection and crave understanding from other human beings. And I think when you're in a relationship business, that is the key is like listening, but not in a superficial way. 
Yeah, and and by the way, I'll throw you a compliment. Like every time Emily and I have met, you know, with you and because you know, we know you in a number of different capacities, you are a really good listener, and that comes through loud and clear to us. It makes you want to get more from from a person who's clearly dialed into what you're talking about. Well, my wife might not agree with you, Dean, but I appreciate the compliment, <laughs> and I will replay this interview for her. <laughs> no, it's it's funny what you say, and and I think I think you're right. And you know, being in in this role that I'm in, you know, I've had a couple of conversations with with friends of mine. You know, and that you cross that line from the friendship to also potentially being a, a business relationship, and and some of them have said. Yeah you know, it might be weird to work with a friend. And, and I say, that's a, you know, that's a great point. But honestly, from my perspective, you finished nine tenths of the work because we already have a relationship. You know, <laughs> we, we don't yes, have to exactly. start building the trust. We already have it and we can, because that's essentially the whole, the whole thing as to your point. Yeah. So Dean, I, I want to move on and I'm going to embarrass you a little bit. I, I know you're a humble guy and, and I know you're focused forward from a, from a professional standpoint. But I think I'd be remiss not to celebrate your history with the U.S. Olympic sailing team as an athlete and the chairman of the U.S. program. So tell me if I'm wrong, but I would guess that coaching at the highest and competing at the highest level of athletics must present some of the most difficult communication challenges. Is that right? And, and maybe what skills did you take away from coaching to your current business? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the question, and that is definitely a part of my past that I'm proud of, but doesn't come up as much. The answer to your question is it's a really challenging thing to coach and lead people who are at the top of their profession. And anybody that makes an Olympic team is unquestionably at the top of their sport, at the top of their profession. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coaching somebody who is already an elite performer, in some ways, is no different than coaching anybody else, because no matter who I'm coaching, I would say you always got to meet the person where they are. Like, I think that's just the essence of a good coach is you got to figure out how to connect with that athlete, with that, whoever you're coaching and, and figure out how you can best support that. That's what a good coach does, but it gets trickier when somebody is literally like one of the top ranked performers in the world in their sport, because there's going to be a long list of things they do really, really well. And you know, every human being has ego. And, and you just have to figure out what's the right way to meet this highly accomplished person where they are. And that's going to be very different for every single one. You also realize very quickly that even people who are at the top of their sport have insecurities like everybody else. Some of them have massive insecurities. And, you know, in some cases, meeting them where they are might be taking them off the figurative pedestal and just speaking to them in a really normal way and not deferring to them all the time. There is a dance, a figurative dance that happens when you start coaching anybody, but it's a, it's a very tricky dance at that level of just figuring out the right way you're going to fit in. And, and, and I'll tell you, and, and this has happened to me many times, both in my Olympic life and also professionally, sometimes the best answer is, you know what, I'm not the right coach for you. Hmm. And I go into every professional coaching relationship, and I, this happened at the Olympic level too, where I would say, hey, listen, if we end up determining that I'm not the right fit for you, I'm good with that. I'm not going to shoehorn myself in there because you're, you're an elite athlete. Your, your needs are so unique. You're at the top of your game. If I'm not the right person for you, that's fine. That's fine. And that humbleness though, by the way, almost always leads to a deeper relationship because they know you're not trying to sell them anything. I don't mean to sound like I'm manipulating it, but like, but that humbleness is, I think part of what an elite athlete 
is looking for. I've said this for the last 30 years of my life. No two coaching assignments in any endeavor are exactly the same. I was going to compliment you on on that piece of advice and, and sort of, you know, also having the, the sort of courage to recognize when it's not going to be a good, you know, relationship and to back away from it from a coaching perspective. W- one group you can't back away from, though, in a communication context is your own family, right? And so right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna right. to make this personal, Dean. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, I know you have, uh, you know, your wife and, and, and you have uh, young kids, as do some of our, our listeners. And we all know that there is perhaps no more important communication channel than the one between a parent and a child. So how does your expertise yeah. in communication translate into your family life? Every day. We have an 11-year-old son, Zach, and we have a recently turned six-year-old daughter, Kate. And I hope I don't sound like a broken record, but I see a lot of crossover. You know, it's funny, you, you, brought, you brought up a few distinctions here, professional versus personal, you know, then professional life versus Olympic life. Now we're going professional to parenting. Mm-hmm. I feel like I keep coming back to the same themes, but that's not accidental. That's actually entirely intentional on my part. Right. The way I think about parenting my kids is very similar to the way I think about coaching an Olympic athlete or coaching an executive in, in my Latimer group life. And that's to realize like, you know what? Our kids are different people. They're at different ages. They're constantly evolving. One's a boy, one's a girl, you know, one's going into sixth grade, one's about to go into first grade. And, you know, while I might have my default style as a parent, I'm not advocating being a total chameleon where you reinvent yourself every minute and have no authenticity, but understanding that meeting your rapidly changing children where they are is more important than imposing your rigid parenting principles on them. I think if you enter with that perception, you're much more likely to stay connected with your kids in a meaningful way as they evolve. And, you know, one of the things Emily and I did, and Emily and I are are perfectly comfortable admitting that we're a little nerdy about a few things. (laughs) And one of the things we did before our first child was born is we interviewed a lot of parents, you know, interviewed, loose term. But we spoke to a lot of parents we trust and said, hey, what's important to you as a parent? And we came up with like eight or 10 principles that really resonated for us. And we actually wrote them down. And we still have that document. And we talk about it every once in a while. And most of the time we're laughing at ourselves now. But what we did is we identified what was really important to us as parents. And that gave us a way to navigate, okay, what are our non-negotiable principles and where, where are we going to be really agile with our kids? And the list of things that we're agile on is a lot longer than the list of things that we're rigid on. And that's actually served us really, really well. And, you know, my parenting style is different now than it was five years ago. But guess what? My kids are different. I'm different. My marriage is different. My professional, everybody's constantly in in a constantly evolving organism. And to think that I'm going to parent the same way when my kid's 20, as I did when my kid was 10 is ridiculous to me. So it's, it's really just meeting the person, whether it's a kid or an Olympic athlete or a client, it's meeting people where they are and being of service to them. In, in the most valuable way that you can be. I mean, that's that's kind of the way I approach it. Well, I've met both of your kids, and I can I can tell you objectively, so far so good. So uh, well, well done in in that <laughs> approach. Nice. So uh, 
you know, Dean, we, we've jumped all over the place in, in this conversation. Yeah. And yet it, it is interesting, as you just pointed out, that, you know, conceptually, uh, this stuff is all interlocking and obviously different audiences yeah. require different tactics. But I would like to, to leave everybody today with, with an example of sort of the value that, that someone with your expertise in communication can provide on a very tactical level. And I remember talking okay. to you once, and you kind of mentioned this in passing. And I thought at the time, God, it's like a, it's like a Jedi mind trick. I never would have thought of that. And it's, it's about, I, I don't know if you'll remember this, but it's about how you can learn about someone from their LinkedIn page and then approach a meeting with that person with a very specific thing in mind. And, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. There's a lot of information available on something like your LinkedIn profile, but, but what you're referring to, if I remember the conversation correctly, is when you go to somebody's LinkedIn page and you see that they have endorsed other people, I always find it really interesting to read those endorsements and see if there are any threads or commonalities in the way they've endorsed other people. And here's why that matters. If you see somebody that has written a number of endorsements of others, but in each endorsement, they comment on the same thing, like this person's really flexible or really good with their customers. If there's something that comes up over and over and over again in the way they endorse other people, that's almost always going to be a signal into what they think or value about themselves or the things that they really value in others. In other words, they're going to write about in others what's really important to them. And you, don't, you won't always be able to pick up this thread, but when you do, it, it, in my experience, it's almost always dead on accurate that people will notice in others the thing they value in themselves or the thing that they aspire to in themselves or the thing that they think is really important. They tend to notice in others what they think is most important. And I've had a number of situations where it was remarkable how accurate that was. I'm pretty sure that's what you're referring to. Did I get it right, Paul? It's exactly right. Thanks, Dean. Well, Dean, this has been uh, a great conversation for me. I've, I've learned a lot, as I, I suspect our listeners have. Any closing thoughts and advice just broadly about communicating? Yeah, you know, I, I say this to everybody that I meet in a professional and a personal setting. You know, at the heart of everything that we do is the relationships that we have, whether it's personal, professional, you know, with our families, with our friends. And if you want to have really deep relationships with people at work or at home, it's probably worth spending a little bit of time thinking about how you communicate with people, how you listen, how much you pay attention to what they care about, how well you can connect with them. Because at the heart of, you know, really life satisfaction is relationships. And at the heart of relationships is communication and connection. And it's hard. You know, connection doesn't happen automatically. There's got to be a little bit of intentional choice there. And it's totally doable. But I just say to people all the time, like, hey, the, the way you communicate with people around you is going to have a direct impact on the depth and the breadth of the relationships that you have. Sound advice, Dean Brenner, and a great note on which to end. So I want to thank you on behalf of my partners, Tom Lips, Andrew Worthington, Ashley Martella, and Paula Rose, and of course, our whole team at Long River Wealth Management. Thank you for being with us and with our listeners today. We truly appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Tell everybody I said hi. I love your group. Will do.